Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Hello, I'm here today with lovely Gary Bain. And uh, we've got a, a, another treat for you, the continuing story of the South Nutsazars. What you say? What, 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 what? But surely it all ended at the Battle of Knightsbridge on the 6th of June. Well, it didn't, did it, Gary? And what, what are we talking about today? Well, today we're talking about the Battle of El Alamein, Pete. So they take part in that. How? How do they do that, Gary, if they've been destroyed at Knightsbridge? Or is that what we're going to find out? We're going to find that out, Pete. But before we start, I just thought I'd mention that uh, Rob Thompson's been talking a lot about you on social media recently as being a billionaire author. You never mentioned that to me. No, no. And if you glance round my humble abode, you, you'll quickly be disabused of, of any such uh, idea. I know, but gold taps in the toilet. Oh, well, there's some sort of basic necessities that have to, you know, you just got to have. Now, uh, let, let's get going. So 6th of June, 1942, uh, in our last podcast on the South Nazis, we discussed how much of the South Nazis were destroyed. Right. And, and back at the rear echelons, that's where, uh, you know, the supply functions uh, the, uh, and uh, the, the vehicles that weren't actually involved in battles, where they all were. No one's got any real idea what's going on, have they, have they Gary? Uh, the, 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 the communication go dead now why could that be uh, and and they don't have any real news and you're going to be gunner reg mcnish who gives us a night 425 battery <laughs> or he thinks he is uh um what what what's what's reg say well let's bear in mind they're talking about their friends here they you know they have no idea about their friends people they've spent the last few years with uh many of whom they grew up with so they had no idea what's happening, and, and Gunnar Reg McNish says, The officer went forward to see what was happening, and then, about mid-morning, he came back to us, and he said, The regiment's gone. You felt shattered. It didn't really sink in until next morning, when they had us on parade. He said, 425 battery, shun! I suddenly realised we were all that was left. I counted the blokes. Only 22. Uh, and it must have been awful. It must have been. Uh, over the next few days, people, stragglers come in uh, one by one uh, and they're falling back in stages, moving back to well, moving back towards Egypt. Uh, and, and this is another quote uh, that, that, that gives an idea of the mood in the battery. This is Second Lieutenant David Elliott. Now, he was a great bloke. He's about six foot six tall. And he was the bloke who actually triggered this. He said, uh, have you ever thought of doing a project on the South Nazis? And I remember my words to him. I said, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then he persuaded me. Anyway, let, let's hear what uh, David Elliott said from, uh, from June 1942. It was obvious that the morale had gone. Who suggested it, I don't know, but we got people together and we had a sing-song, sang all the old First World War songs, plus a few from this war. Towards the end, this gunner, a Welsh miner, he had a beautiful voice, and he sang the Welsh national anthem in that desert night evening. It stuck in my mind. Now, Many people, you included, would think that he's talking about the men of Harlech, but it's called Hen Vlad Thin Haday, which means old land of my father's, Pete. That's just there for our, Could our you Welsh sing it for friends. Us? Yeah. No. You've got a lovely voice, though. Men of Harlech. No, <laughs> <laughs> You've been watching Zulu too much, haven't you? Yes. Think, weren't they the Worcestershire? Or were they, no, the Warwickshire Road, but 
They were, yeah. Behind them, what's going on behind them? Well, we'd better have a catch-up on, on the wall, so to speak. Uh, the Gazala line, which is what they'd been part... Well, they'd been behind it, but it's comprehensive breach, and uh, and there's a full-scale retreat going on. They hoped to stand at Tobruk, uh, but it fell on the 20th of June. Uh, Rommel, he's like the man of the moment, isn't he? And he's promoted to field marshal, and his armoured columns are surging on the on. You could just sort of imagine a metaphorical scene. On the on to victory, driving across the border of Egypt, deep into Egypt. Uh, and uh, it's a terrible situation that Phil, uh, uh, General Claude Auchinleck, uh, he, he, he takes, he's, he's a com- the, the Middle East command, uh, command, uh, leader and he uh he, he takes personal command of the 8th army on the 25th of june and he brings a sense of purpose to what hitherto had been a bit of a disorganized mess uh he just has a sort of ability to focus on what matters um he realizes they can't hold mercer matrun now you remember mercer matrun that's yeah. where the south Nazis first arrived in the western desert couldn't hold that um and he orders on 26th of june a retreat uh to cut the orders it to continue uh, but there's a change in tone. And what, what do you think that would be? I mean, how does he change the emphasis, Gary? Well, I think it, there's a difference between an organised retreat and, and falling back in disorder. So he, he's talking about, for example, that they avoid static positions and keep mobile. He's not allowing the units to be pinned down and destroyed. And that's critical. So it's it's effectively a fighting retreat. And there is a difference. And they're... And they're this is a significant retreat, Pete. They're talking about 150 miles to get to a defensive line anchored on El Alamein. No, I mean, uh, but there's something else going on. Your logistics, we always think of you as logistics from your past in the rail industry. Uh, what does that mean? Every mile they go forward means? Well, for the Germans, it's stretching their supply lines and that makes them vulnerable not only to, to, the, uh, uh, to the desert and having to get the supplies there, but don't forget the Desert Air Force. You know, they are going to play a significant role. They certainly do, and an increasing role. I mean, we've, we've glided past them a bit, but one day we'll perhaps do a podcast on them because they are really important from now on. Now, they take up a defensive line anchored uh, on El Alamein, which is on the coast in Egypt, uh, and, and it, it stretches some 40 miles down to the impassable Qatara Depression. Well, almost impassable, I think. Is, uh, yeah, it's, I think what is almost it? impassable. Yeah, yeah. It's an area of salt, soft sand, salt marshes. It's just horrible. Um, uh, now, how far away are they from what really matters? Well, they're still 160 miles from Cairo, so that's all right, isn't it? Anything yeah. else? Well, they're only 70 miles from the, uh, the naval base at Alexandria. Is that important? <laughs> That's quite important, isn't it? Quite important to Gary Bain. <laughs> well. <laughs> X12. <laughs> Almost impassable. Peter Hart. Yes. <laughs> there we go. Now, uh, Orkilek, uh he's got to stand at El Alamein, but he, he, he does something else which proves controversial later on, although I don't know why. He also prepares more defences, stretching back to the Nile Delta. Just in case things go wrong, his underlying intention: he's going to keep the uh, the Eighth Army as an army in being. It's gonna, so it it's not going to get split up, defeated in detail. He's going to fight it as a whole and keep it together and fight to the end. That's just sensible, isn't it? It sounds sensible to me. Now uh, he he re- he's a good general, I think, and he recognises that there's some tactical inadequacies. I can't go; we haven't got time to go into these, but he centralises control of the artillery. This has been a long time needed. Uh, in the First World War, the First World War generals were much more aware of the need to concentrate artillery, not allow it to be dis- dissipated in penny packets. Uh, he starts to concentrate the firepower. Uh, he also reorganises his armoured forces, introducing sort of more armour into his infantry divisions and more infantry into his armoured divisions. I think it's a, a, a gross simplification, I presume you'd say. Uh, but uh, he's doing all this, but it's going to take time, isn't it? You can't reorganise a massive institution just like that, can you? It, it takes time. His men, what state do you think they were in? Well, I shouldn't imagine they're in very good fighting condition. Uh, you know, they've been retreating. Knackered. They've been beaten, frankly. Uh, and, and they're going to be absolutely knackered, yes, to use your, uh, vernacular. your vernacular. Oh, that's a very posh word. We both used it as well. Well, uh, you were slightly first and I copied you. Oh, I see. But you pronounced it well. <laughs> so the Eighth Army still, still in existence, still capable of fighting. Uh, so there is hope. 
backed by the Desert Air Force. Now, um, Rommel's determined, as is his wont, uh, to deny the British any time to recover. Uh, they're closer to their supply dumps. They've got reinforcements on the way. Rommel doesn't want to give them a chance to do this, so he attacks. 30th of June, 1942, he launches the first Battle of Alamein. El Alamein. Oh, no, the first Battle of Alamein. What is it? It's very confusing, isn't it? There's lots of these El Alamains. This is not the Battle of El Alamein. This is the Battle of Alamein. And um, he can't get through the Katara Depression, or he doesn't want to, to the uh, south. Uh, so he has to go straight through the, the British line. And what, what do you think the British resistance was? It, was it what Rommel was expecting? Well, no, he didn't expect the resistance to be as stiff as it was, actually. And it... it quickly becomes apparent to him and the, the German, Italian and German divisions are approaching exhaustion. They've been fighting too. So they're knackered as well, to use that expression. Yes. It's an and expression now, not vernacular. And you mentioned it earlier, they're at the end of a very long supply line by this stage. So they've got very little air support. They're not in a good state. They're not in a fantastic condition. Now, they, on 2nd of July, they attack, oh dear, Ruaysat Ridge, are we going for? Uh, and uh, the British artillery, for a start, it is getting more concentrated. It blazes out in unison. The Desert Air Force, it attacks the, the German forces as they come in. Uh, and on the 4th of, of July, beaten back, Rommel's got no option but to call off the attack. Uh, the advance on the Nile would be postponed. Uh, as it happens, it would be indefinitely, I think. Uh, um, so who's got, they're both, what, what's going to happen next? They're both sort of stuck, aren't they? One side's right at the end of a supply chain, the other's rebuilding. So who's, who's going to, who's going to be ready to strike first? Uh, so that's where we are. That's where we are. Now, how do the South Nazis fit into this? Um, well, they don't have a, a big potential at the start, do they? Uh, what, what is their total strength? Uh, besides, not men, but how many guns can they deploy? Well, they've got one Ooh. 25-pounder to uh, their name. Not, that, that's one, no? Yeah, but it had a round firmly stuck into the, into the barrel. So Is that serious? It's quite serious, yes. Particularly if you try to fire another one. <laughs> uh, so they moved back to the Royal Artillery Base Depot at Almarza. That's in Cairo. Uh, by this time, they've got nine officers, uh, of which only Captain Charles Laborde was an original. Uh, they've got 16 NCOs and roughly 150 men. But reinforcements start to flood in. And they're a right mixture, aren't they? Uh, some of them were rather rough. And some of the South Nottasars looked in Ascot at them. You're, you're going to be Lance Sergeant Harold Harper. Uh, uh, they're now known as 107th Battery RHA. They're no longer a regiment. And what does Harold say? Am I doing this because you often refer to me as your bit of rough? <laughs> no, I never refer to you as that. Wayne refers to you as that. Oh no, Warren! <laughs> oh, we like to call Wayne Warren and Warren Wayne. They're, they're two different people. Lance Sergeant Harold Harper, 107 Battery, RHA. The battery was formed out of a lot of ragtags. Cooks, office clerks, quartermaster stores blokes, quite a few had prison service for desertion. The number of Nottingham people was probably about 10%. All sorts of people were being flung together to try and make this battery with a bunch of new officers. Now, isn't it funny how the term prison service and desertion is often followed by the word Nottingham? No, it's well, not funny. <laughs> we'll have to ask Jim Grundy about that. No, that's not on. Those Nottingham people are lovely and completely reliable. Um, now, who's appointed to command uh, 107 Battery? This is a character. Who is he, uh, Gary? Major Albert Lewis Jones. What's he like? He's a bit like you, really, isn't he? Well, he's described as a strong character. I think that's an understatement. I think uh, a lot of people thought he was positively abrasive and, and slightly uncouth, I think it would be fair to say. Now, perhaps this is the sort of man we need, is it? Or... Well, in a tough job, he might actually be exactly what you need. He's got to weld a whole new team, a whole new battery together. He's got two surviving troops. They're called A and B, a 107th battery. And that was going to be posted to the 7th Medium Regiment Royal Artillery. They're regulars. And they were to replace the 25th, 26th battery, which had been destroyed uh, when they, uh, at Gazala in June 1942. So at the same time, essentially, as the South Nazis had been smashed up, the three batteries, original batteries. Uh, now, the South Nazis then would be side by side with another battery, the 27th, 28th battery. They're the regulars, and they've got 4.5-inch howitzers. Now, 
Did uh, did the South Nutsazars get 4.5-inch howitzers then, Gary? Because they've been used to 25-pounders. Wouldn't that be a step up, or did they get something else? Well, the 107 battery was uh, issued with a brand new, brand new, Pete, 5.5-inch medium guns, which were capable of firing a 100-pound shell a distance of some 16,000 yards. Is a 100-pound shell bigger than a 25-pound shell, Gary? Well, I think the clue's in the name. 100-pound and 25-pounds. What do you think? Three or four times bigger? Yeah, three or four times bigger. In fact, four times. Is this this is a new gun, isn't it? And it and the War Museum used to have one proudly on display, uh, and it was one of my favourite exhibits. I believe it's now been sent to a farm in uh, uh, in, in Turkey to uh, to amuse the peasants. Um, the um, I don't know where it is, uh, but uh, it's certainly not on display anymore. But it, it's it's a fantastic gun, and uh, it, it the, previously. They relied. The Eighth Army had medium artillery that dated back to the First, first World, War. World War. Yeah, uh, but this is a big step forward. Um, uh, what do you think the men thought? Well, they, you know, they're, they're going to be thinking about what sort of wallop wow. they can deliver wow. with a hundred-pound wow. shell. Yeah, you know, that's exactly what they're going to be thinking. Uh, and they also get uh, some. Uh, what do they get, Gary? Well, Pete, I was looking forward to you saying this, but they get uh, some uh, purpose-built four-wheel drive. That's six-wheeled diesel-engined AC Matador, Matador gun towers. Not towers, then. No, they didn't get any towers this oh. time. Uh, what were they like? Well, they thought, you know, they created a good impression. They, they were well-made, manoeuvrable, and mechanically very reliable. That's important, I would imagine, in the desert. Yeah, yeah. It had a powerful engine, and it was intended to allow them to tow tow the 5.5-inch gun at about 30 mile an hour. And they'd take the whole gun crew, and they also, you could have a load of shells on board. They acted as their own limber. They were a fantastic thing. Now, um, so they've got to form new gun sections. Now, do you think all these new, the, the people who'd survived, that they'd be in the rear echelons? They wouldn't be gunners, would they? And a lot of the new people coming in wouldn't be gunners either. So who were they using? Well, we mentioned it before, you know, they're getting tradesmen of all sorts. So you've got specialist assist- assistants. They're the fitters, brainy gun assistants, yeah. Yeah, fitters, signalers, storemen. Where everybody was being pressed into service because they had little option but to re- retrain as gunners. You know, they had to. Now, one of them was my favourite. Uh, he was an OP specialist. That means he, he's used to being at the OP, uh, 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 guiding the shells onto their targets. But now he's made a gun sergeant. Harold Harper is gun sergeant, Harold Harper, and he has to learn the 5.5-inch gun drill. What do you think he notices? Well, you're going to tell us, aren't we? Lance Sergeant Harold Harper. We've been used to handling 25-pound shells and found ourselves handling a 100-pound shell. It seemed a very laborious exercise. We were told that all the hand-loaded guns, this was the heaviest. Manoeuvring the gun into position was very difficult. We had very little instruction. We had to com- the comfort of knowing that this gun fired probably four to 5,000 yards farther, so we'd be a bit farther away from <laughs> the enemy. That was the only consolation we got. Every time we saw a 25-pounder, we were almost reduced to tears. And that's just a classic laziness. These bloody shells are four times heavier. They're heavier. They're harder to... You can't fling them about like a 25-pound shell. They're, they're big. One of my favourite people I ever interviewed in the South Not Sars was the next character we're going to introduce to you. He's Gunner Ken Giles. Now, before the war, he'd been an optician. Uh, he'd, he'd, had, he'd had a family. He'd been nearly a conscientious objector. He was a really quiet, respectable, nice type. A brilliant amateur musician. He could have been a professional. He, had, he certainly had professional standards on concert piano. He was a genius, a composer. He was a bloody genius. He was trained in survey work at great expense and now was told that he was a gunner in, in 107 battery. It, it's fair to say that Ken wasn't a natural gunner, was he? And you've got a story now you're going to tell. In his own words, he was a lovely man. I was put on Sergeant Tickle's gun. Is that his real name? Well, if he it is. is Dave Tickle, I interviewed him. Um, I was completely at sea. I was not exactly a tremendous physical specimen, and I've always been underweight. That's why I'm doing this, Pete, isn't it? <laughs> On that first day, I had to take charge of the rammer. This is a pole about six to eight feet long with a kind of mop on the end. I was to throw the rammer rather as one would throw the javelin 
to one of the other numbers to ram the shell home. My aim was terrific. Terrifically bad. The rammer hit Sergeant Tickle full in the face. There was a tremendous gasp of horror. <gasps> I shivered and practically shrank into the ground. But to his eternal credit, Sergeant Tickle never turned a hair. His face just expressed surprise and his eyes streamed with tears. And he said, I think you'd better change numbers, Gunner Giles. It was soon realised that I would be quite useless on a gun. He was put in a specialist gun position uh, as, a, as a gun position officer's assistant. But he's a wonderful man. I just love the picture of Dave Tickle being hit full in the face. You know, just as, I picture it as a solid, solitary tear falling <laughs> at the side, running down his cheek. Just sort of go purple in the effort not to explode. He was a nice man, Dave Tickle. Uh, so what happens? Well, they're driven on by the domineering Major Lewis Jones, uh, learning a gun drill. Uh, there's a real sense of urgency because Lewis Jones has been told they're going up into the desert within a month. Uh, they desperately needed heavier guns at the front. They've got to get ready. They've got to go. They haven't got much time. After just a month, they leave Almazar and move up to join the rest of 7th Medium Red RIA. Uh, they're at El Alamein. Uh, and they get there on 15th of July, 42. So that's only five weeks after the regiment had been destroyed. The South Notazars were back in action. It's not only times are changing for the South Notazars, they're also changing for the 8th Army. Uh, after his success at 1st Alamein, Auchinleck thinks the long-term advantage lies for the Allies. He, he wants to plan for the next offensive. He wants to utilise the stream of reinforcements. He wants to train them for the Western Desert. But somebody else is involved. Somebody ignorant of all military practicalities. Someone with a, re a record of complete stupidity whenever it came to anything on the world of, in the world of strategy. Who was that masked man? Winston Churchill. What does he think? Well, he thinks that uh, Oceanic's honesty is uh, looking at things through rose-tinted spectacles. It proved fatal when dealing with Churchill because he thinks that we should be attacking now. And in August, he replaces him. So basically, Churchill thinks think he's the one looking through rose-tinted spectacles. Uh, yeah, he Orc thinks things are much better than, than he, he's getting reports An attack now, attack yeah. now, attack, attack now. Attack, Don't attack, wait attack. for that silly old reinforcements. Don't to be trained and used to the desert. Don't wait for any of that. Now, attack now, attack now, attack now. Rommel's on the, the back foot. It's, it's now or never. So in mid-August, he replaces him with General Sir Bernard Montgomery. And Orkinek, uh, who's, remember, he was the Middle East commander, is, or he couldn't stay, because him and uh, Montgomery, for all, we won't go to, but they didn't get on. Uh, he was offered the Persia Iraq command, and uh, he, he says, you can, you can uh, 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 do with you what, what you will. I wasn't going to say that. So he leaves <laughs> the North African stage. Yeah, that's right. Now, ex Montgomery, what's he like? Right. Uh, Montgomery shakes the whole thing up. Uh, he builds on the foundations laid by Orkinek. In my view, or Orkinek sets the scene for uh, at the Battle of El Alamein. But Montgomery does build on it. He, he stamps down hard on the idea of preparing for any more defensive, you know, def defensive works on the canal. Uh, I think that's a gesture because they don't remove the ones that Orkinek's prepared. But it's all about morale. He says he. <laughs> then what does he say? He says... Well, he insists back to Churchill that he's not going to attack until he's completely ready, which is exactly what Orkinet said and led to his dismissal. Yeah, it's... Orkinet uh, uh, was badly treated by Churchill. Um, now, Montgomery is a more modern general. Um, how, how, how does he show it? He shows it in... He, he, he visits almost every unit. He briefs everyone he has. He's really keen that everyone knows what's happening. Um, and, and, and this is what's going on in the background. Now, what's happening to the, the, the South Notazars in the El Alamein lines? Well, the men of 107 Battery, who are in, in uh, as you remember, they're with 27th, 28th Battery, and together they are 7th Medium Regiment. Um, now, they, they've joined them, and uh, they get a, a new draft of officers. Now, some of these we've had before, haven't we? You'll recognise some of these names. In fact, you've read quotes from them. These are the NCOs, of the South Notazars have been taken out after Tobruk and uh, sent back to Okchu, Officer Cadet Training Unit, and they were now commissioned, and hence they'd missed uh, the Battle of Knightsbridge. Now, who are they? Well, Bob Falls, 
uh, Ian Sinclair, Charles Westlake. Uh, they're the three I remember best. Uh, and they were wonderful. They're, they're all second lieutenants now. Uh, how were they made welcome by the lovely, uh, the lovely uh, Major Lewis Jones? Uh, well, I'll tell you. I'm going to be second lieutenant Bob Folds. Uh, and he says this. <clears throat> At first, I found it a bit unhappy and depressing in that environment. We had the feeling that we were outnumbered as the old South Not Cesar's element there. And we weren't very welcomed by the people who had recently arrived. I think their tone was taken by, was taken from Major Lewis Jones, who was the battery commander. He was an excellent soldier. No question about that. Extremely knowledgeable. He knew his gunnery. His drive was unshakable. He was competent and he got the battery to be a fighting unit by sheer force of personality. Having said that, he wasn't a particularly pleasant man. He was a bully to junior officers. We all expected to be driven hard. That's what we were there for. But there was unnecessary harshness. Uh, so they're very ambivalent about Lewis Jones. And, and these men, this, they were interviewed. I interviewed uh, for Bob, Bob Falls, 70 years later sort of thing. Uh, they're uh, 60 years later. Can't work it out. Uh, 1990s. Uh, yeah, 60 years later. No. Oh, God. Some years later. Right at maths. <laughs> now, who's in overall command? Well, that's uh, Lieutenant Colonel Toc Elton. H.C. Toc Elton. He's always known as Toc. He's a really noted gunner, but he doesn't intervene. So the man that matters is Lewis Jones. What do you think the new replacements felt as they approached the front line at El Alamein for the first time? So let's look at Ken Giles again. He's a new bloke and he's intelligent. How does he react? I saw one shell burst and I suddenly thought, this is war. This is it. I was a bit nervous. I didn't want to be killed out here and buried in the sand. I felt the first turnings over in my stomach, but it soon passed. I never mentioned it, and who knows if the other rookies had the same feelings. I wouldn't be at all surprised. Well, if they were normal, they certainly would have. I think that's a massive understatement. Now, their their gun positions were about 200 yards from the sea. They're, They're on their holidays. No, <laughs> they're by the seaside though. And they were supporting the 9th Australian Division. I think they're the ones who'd been in Tobruk. In fact, I'm bloody certain they were. Uh, and they were part of 30th Corps, which was holding the whole coastal sector. To their left were the 13th Corps, they, and they ran down the line to the Quatara Depression. Now, as soon as they got there, they became aware of one very important drawback of these very large, big guns. What do you think that drawback was? They had to dig the gun pits. What's the difference between a 25-pounder and a 5.5-inch gun? Well, I should imagine that the gun pits were somewhat bigger. Yeah, not bloody kidding. They're absolutely huge. The 5.5 is a big gun. And bear in mind, this is sand. You know, it's not... It's not digging and, and throwing it out. The sand's going to be coming back in again. Is it the old one, one spadeful out, <laughs> two spadefuls back in? Yeah, yeah. I can imagine now. Albert Swinton, he's one of my favourites. He'd survived because if you remember, I think I mentioned it in the uh, Knightsbridge, he survived because he was getting a beer supply. <laughs> yes. And, uh, anyway, he's now Sergeant Albert Swinton in charge of a gun. And uh, he's with B Troop 107 Battery. And he says, he says, what does he say, Gary? I was right on the beach, the right-hand gun of the whole lot at Alamein. We were still learning and we were being compared with the 7th Medium, who were a very efficient regular mob which was most unfair. I think we got a bit of an inferiority complex, so we had to really pull finger until eventually we were as good and probably better than them. Now I sense an old British Army thing going on. They're competing with the regulars of 27th, 28th Battery. Oh, we've had this before. Uh, what is the, the biggest co- thing that drives the British Army to improve? What, what is that thing? Well, competition. Either competition with other units or competitions within your own battery, for example. It, it drives them on. And it's not just in gun drill. They're practising under Lewis Jones. He, he's, a, he's so... He's dry, he drives them really hard. They're getting their guns out of gun pits, practising, dropping into action. And what's the... Always, they're just trying to get, reduce the time between an alarm going off and the first shell you know they say driving along the alarm goes they get an alarm call and dropping into action getting that first shell into the air uh who else has to be put through their paces is a is a is a is a battery just a gun team or is somebody else involved no no you've got to eliminate any weak links so you've got the signals and the specialists they're also being put through their paces 
So if you don't get a message disseminated quickly, then before you start dropping interaction, you're going to be late. Uh, any weak link. Now, the 5.5 inches, they're slightly different from a 25 pounder. Their main role is long range, because they are long range, and it's counter battery work, isn't it? And uh, what they get is they get a list of all the identified German gun batteries. Now, where does that come from? Where, where, where would you get uh, these from? Well, it's going to be from the RAF reconnaissance flights. That are, that so, are, there's an Air Force. This is another vital role, surely. Yeah, uh, but also, you know, it, it, that's hard work. It, it's not, it doesn't come easy. Uh, and it's also contemporary. It's at that time. It's quick. They move. You've got to get it quickly. And, and also, uh, let's not forget the work of the 4th Survey Regiment, who flash spotting, that kind of thing. All builds up a picture. So you've got the RF, you've got the, the surveyors, they all do it. Now, gonna get, now, this quote, people say, why do you have these slightly boring quotes? Well, do you know what? One of the things about, I think, personal experience is sometimes you've got to learn what people are actually doing to understand it's not all fine. some 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 things are they may sound dull but actually that's what they're doing that's what is the nitty-gritty of it and he's going to describe his work in the command post what does ken giles do i was in the command post working out the counter battery lists which came through from presumably divisional headquarters giving the coordinates of enemy gun positions the enemy batteries which would have been found out through flash spotting or sound ranging there were sometimes upwards of 200 of these batteries. They all had code numbers such as XC, CY, DJ, that sort of thing. When we were required to fire on an enemy battery, we would get an order from our battery command post through to our troop. Target counter battery XY. Instead of having to work out the coordinates to save time, they would have already been worked out so that I had them down on a list and I didn't have to refer to the artillery board or anything else. So one was able to pass the fire orders immediately to the guns who would then engage the target. So that's that's a massive job that's got to be done. But it does explain how it works. And that's what personal experience does. You've got to understand how things work. Now, now what's happening? What's happening? I mean, so are, are, is Rommel just going to leave the British to it or, or is he going to do something about it? Well, he decides to do what Rommel does and he decides to attempt to further attack on the night of the 30th of August. So that's, he's going to swing an assault force south, round the British left flank. Uh, now, I thought the Katara depression was... Yeah, uh, almost impassable. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. He, anyway, he's, uh, he's going to go round the left flank and then up onto the uh, Alam Halfa Ridge, which runs parallel to the coast. It is essentially to the rear of the 8th Army. Luckily, uh, unluckily for Rommel, luckily for Montgomery, he's warned. Who's he warned by? Um, well, it's by the ultra-intelligence system. And one of our friends, uh, 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 whose name I've forgotten, runs that good museum. Friend. He's a good friend. He's really, he's tall. He's tall. <laughs> and his name's David. Other than that, I can't really remember. Very, very tall. Uh, so Ultra is crucial to this. Uh, uh, on, on 1st September, 107th Regiment is ordered south to support the 2nd New Zealand Division. Now, the, the next bit's complicated. And I think I dodge a bit of this in the book. It's really complicated. What have I always said? If something's complicated, dodge it. So we're dodging it. Um, but they fire loads and loads of shells. And the Germans, do you know what? The Germans notice them. What do the Germans do if they notice an effective enemy? Uh, retaliate. No. Yep. Are you saying the Germans can be rough? <laughs> Very rough. So what happened? Now, well, here we have uh, Captain Charles the Board. And uh, he's on the B Troop. And uh, suddenly the Stukas fly out the sky. Now, this, this is the first of two quotes, and there's no humour at all in the second quote that Gary's going to read. I'm going to read Chaplain Charles Lebeau. He says, They destroyed one of the Matador gun towers, and they killed a number of the men. I think we were all pretty badly shaken. The bombing was fairly hairy, and we only had slit trenches. No Stuka raid in which you are in the target area is any fun at all. And that's the truth of it. But the next quote comes from, uh, second Lieutenant, he'd been a sergeant, remember, but he's now Second Lieutenant, Ian Sinclair, B Troop. Uh, and this next quote's awful. It just is awful. A driver named Bex, I can see him now, ever so little fellow he was. He had his whole stomach ripped out. He was cut almost in half. I can remember him being alive with his stomach out, wrapping him in a blanket and thinking, oh my God. He never lost consciousness until the ambulance came. 
The ambulance men wouldn't take him because they knew he was going to die. Oh no, he can't live, leave him. Just left him in the blanket. He did die very soon. They were right. It was their business. He was going to die. I wish he'd have died straight away because I can remember the look on his face. I think that's terrible. I I, I feel so sorry for that Gunner Bex and and, uh, what a way to die. And also, do you know what? I feel sorry for Second Lieutenant Ian Sinclair. When he says I can remember the look on his face, that was from an interview done in the 1990s. He still remembered, and he was upset. When he uh, People could listen. All these interviews, I should mention, can be listened to, usually, if not now, then soon, on the Imperial War Museum uh, uh, website. Uh, and Sinclair, just have a listen to the tone of his voice. The British resistance was just too strong for Rommel, wasn't it? Uh, and from 2nd of September, Rommel pulls back his assault divisions. Uh, he'd failed. Um, now, and as the operations wind down, so the South Nazis go back to their coastal positions. Now, Montgomery doesn't follow up immediately. Uh, do you know what? It's almost as if he was, wasn't was quite the thrust in General Churchill thought he was. What, what do you, he preferred to build up his strength? Well, um, his reputation then and later was for caution. Yeah, complete his reorganisation and strike only when the time is right. Who does that sound like? Who who, who said that? Orkinleck. Orkinleck, yeah. Or even Orkinleck. <laughs> well, they're both the same. And do you know what? <laughs> if, you want to have a, if you've got a daft name, you're going to get it mispronounced. Peter Hart. He's lovely. Back at the coastal government positions, the South Nazis are getting better. Uh, they're practising. Practice, practice, practice. They've also got this bloody genius in command, overall commander of the regiment, uh, Colonel Tock Elton. And he's, he's bringing in new methods all the time. Uh, we've only got time for one of them. And it's the stonk. And uh, loads of people claim to have invented the stonk, but uh, he, he certainly seems to have uh, been one of the early exponents. And it's, it's a, a, a way of securing fast, effective concentration of fire. You're going to be Second Lieutenant Sinclair again in a happier quote. I thought the stonk was a dance. Yeah, that's the way you dance. (laughs) Second Lieutenant Ian Sinclair. And that's a stomp. The word stonk being given, it meant a concentration of all available guns, whoever they belonged to, onto a target that needed every available gun. The word stonk went down everywhere and the map reference where the stonk was to take place. You knew where you were on the map, you got a line using a compass bearing on the map reference you'd been given. You point the gun at it, one round, load, fire! An air burst for everybody else to get a line on it. Everybody else set up their zero lines on this round in the air, and you all get into action. Now that means if you're under a stonk, it's like, this is one of those things like reinventing the wheel. Sounds very like the uh, sort of concentrations they used to do on the Western Front. Uh, they, they, I've forgotten the nickname of it, but they had a system for doing this in 1917 and 18. Uh, what happens if you're under a stonk? Do you think it's uh, healthy? No, I think the target's almost inevitably going to be destroyed, isn't it? Certainly not. Yeah, it, it's just a really, it's a great weapon of war. Now, in October 1942, preparations for the Battle of El Alamein begin in earnest. Uh, They they dig forward gun positions. They move some 500 rounds per gun up. They bury it carefully. (laughs) I expect some of it's still there in the British Army. Uh, uh, All the guns uh, are recalibrated just to make sure that they they remain accurate because, as you know, guns get worn. They they, they need uh, calibration. And on the 20th of October... uh, 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 1942, 107 battery move into their new gun positions. Again, uh, just north of the main coast road. So they're still by the coast. And this is a quote from uh, Lieutenant Eric Dobson. Now, I didn't interview Eric. Eric was uh, the bloke who wrote the history of the South Nazars, uh, to which I was very indebted in writing my book. Uh, he, he sadly had died before we could interview him. But it, he, this is him explaining uh, how they got the first news of the, uh, of the Battle of El Alamein. First definite news of coming operations reached the battery officers in the mess dugout on the night of 22nd of October. Colonel Elton walked in after giving five minutes warning of his coming. Usually, the Colonel's visits concerned an unfortunate event of that day. I do like that. (laughs) An unfortunate event. (laughs) So, five minute warning, here comes the rollicking. But it wasn't this time, was it? No. Everyone sensed that this was something different and the party was in a jovial mood by the time he arrived. 
Jovial, perhaps, because a few bottles of a strange brew called Vin Marco had just come up from Alexandria. Colonel Elton explained that 7th Medium Regiment was to support all the attacking moves in the northern sector, first with a monster counter-battery programme and later with infantry supporting shoots. Now, the amount of work this demands is unbelievable. They have to do work out this battery all the 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 gun officer gun position officers everybody all the specialists are hard at work they work oh through the night to get ready for the scheduled start the artillery bombardment at 2140 on the 23rd of october the infantry attack will go in 20 minutes later on the 20 uh, at uh, 2200 hours so basically there's uh, 20 minutes of of just barrage uh this is south not ours they're going back into action just four months four and a bit months after they've been destroyed. The guns roar out together. And there's actually film of this, there's famous film of this in the film, about, I think it's called The Battle of El Alamein, unimaginatively. Um, uh, and it, 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 it's just the flash, isn't it, in the, in the, the, the night skies. Uh, gunner Ernie Hurry of, of A Troop, uh, 107 Battery, says, says this. There were guns in front of us, guns at the side of us, guns at the back of us. When they opened up, it was a tremendous salvo. You'd never heard anything like it. Guns all around you. And these flashes. All we heard was one shell came back. It came right over us. It landed well behind us. Now, some of the more thoughtful men were thinking, what what must that be like for the Germans? Uh, But an awful lot of them just don't care anymore, Uh, especially the ones who had friends that had been killed in the cauldron, Uh, or or friends of Beck's. People... I'm afraid war is a cruel business. Captain Charles the Board, B Troop, says this. The staggering noise when all the guns opened together. One was absolutely shattered by the noise. It was tremendous. The whole heavens lit up with Monty's moonlight. Searchlights put up to brighten up the moon. Every now and then, when we were firing, there would be the most tremendous explosion in the German lines when one of the shells had hit an ammunition dump. A tremendous flash. The men were supposed to fire four rounds a minute, but were actually firing something like six rounds a minute. This is from 5.5-inch guns. The guns got violently hot and were leaping about in the gun pits because the oil in the buffer recuperator had got so thin with the heat. You could see the gun barrels glowing. They were so hot. This is, uh, you know, it's a tremendous effort. The physical effort, Gary. Can you imagine those 100-pound shells? I don't know, 100-pound... I mean, that's like half of you. Thanks, mate. Anyway, Sergeant Harold Harper, B Troop, says this. After we'd fired about 10 to 12 rounds, I thought, blimey, it's beginning to get hard work. I noticed one bloke was missing. He was the biggest bloke in the crew, and he was hiding in a slip trench behind the gun. That sort of thing can become contagious, so I had to do something drastic to get things back on an equilibrium. I had to go and drag him out in the middle of the barrage, get him by the scruff of the neck and threaten to shoot him if he didn't get back on the job. It sounds terrible now, but you were a different sort of animal in those days. It is. It's different times, different different, different priorities. Uh, the gunner went back to his post. Harper later says that he never really got his nerve back and I think he was sent away later. It is a, a better way than in the First World War when... Uh, some of them were shot for, for, the, for, for that kind of behaviour. Um, now, at dawn, the medium guns switched their fire to German surviving strong points that were holding up the advance. It, it's a relentless barrage. I can't tell you what it's like. Just the guns blazing hour after hour, and it starts to become day after day. There's no chance for rest, Gary. They're just driving themselves on. Uh, it's all hands to the pump as well. Everybody, officers, everybody's joining in on the gun teams, giving people a rest. Officers would help, and so they bloody should do. It, it's a, most of all, it's a collective effort. Do you not think it's collective? And this is Second Lieutenant Charles Westlake. He was in A Troop, the other troop of the battery, and he says this. The length of time you went without any sleep, it was days on end you were in action, firing or taking charge of the gun positions. The troop leader would go round the gun pits, doing anything he could to assist whatever it was. If it was hunting ammunition, you humped ammunition. If the number one wanted some help, you would give it to him. Most of the time, it was a matter of making sure that your presence was known, that they knew you were there. Having a word with them as they went round, sorry, as you went round from one gun pit to the next. 
I think most of us went 36 to 48 hours without any sleep whatsoever. You seem to get into a sort of zombie-like routine where you just keep going. You know what your job is and you just get on with it. You do get heavy-headed. Your eyes ache like the devil. All you want to do is go to sleep for a couple of days. You just can't. We realised we were just going to drop dead on our feet and we had to organise it so that you snatch a little bit of sleep wherever you could while somebody took over. Now, uh, there's not meant to have been a single shell fall on the South Nazis' positions. Yes, a couple went over. That's a sign. What is that a sign of? It's a sign that the artillery bombardment had worked. You know, the counter-battery bombardment had worked. They had done their job. Well, the clue's uh, in the name, counter-battery. It is. <laughs> so they've actually done what they were there to do. Now, um, there is, uh, now we haven't got time in this podcast to go through the whole story of Al Alamein. It's a huge story. Uh, the initial plan, to be honest, fails. Uh, 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 then Montgomery thinks on his feet. I've got, I give him credit for this. And he produces uh, another plan uh, to chew up the German reserves uh, and launches Operation Supercharge. And the end result, as we all know now, is a success. But a big part of that success, Gary, is the power of the mass guns. And the South Dutchers and the rest of 7th Medium Regiment are a big part of that. Uh, su- success with barrages stretching into days. Uh, 3rd of November, the British begin another series of attacks uh, and they're still not all successful. The fighting's still hard. Do you know what? I don't think it's ever easy against German and good Italian opposition because the Italians, people, people totally underestimate. Some of the Italian divisions are excellent. They're really tough opposition. Uh, what happens? Well, eventually Rommel's got no option uh, he has to retreat. Uh, who do you think he prioritises in, in carrying out that retreat? Well, he prioritises the Africa Corps, and, and unfortunately, he leaves most of the Italian units to their fate. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, do you know what? I, I really think that, uh, and people like Bryn Hammond in his book about El Alamein have done a great job on this. People need to stop making stupid slurs against Italians and think about what was actually done and achieved at times by their fighting forces. They, 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 they could be really serious opposition. Anyway, what happens then? Well, 5th of November, 107 batteries ordered to advance some 10,000 yards. They take up new positions uh, in what had been the uh, German lines. Uh, what happens when you uh, take up positions in, in, in your old enemy's lines where you've been bombarded? Well, it's freezing cold. It's, uh, it's pouring with rain. The desert can rain. And they're digging new gun pits. Uh, what, what, what do you think is all around them? Well, they're going to see the signs of the slaughter, the damage that their guns have done. What do you think the reactions are? There's sort of different reactions. There's different there? reactions. I'm, I'm going to read Gunner Ken Giles, a quote from Gunner Ken Giles, and he says, We passed an out-of-action German gun. One or two members of the dead German gun crew were lying on the sand, a greatcoat over them, a stick or rifle dug in the ground where their head rested, with a German helmet over the top. That made a very great impact upon me. It was so unnerving, you could feel an atmosphere around such abandoned guns. To some, like, Ken Giles is a thoughtful uh, He's a sensitive man, there's no doubt about that. But just think about that image in your own mind for a moment. Um, You know, that's arguably a typical image that you see. Uh, a stick or a, a gun or a cross in the ground marking the dead. And remember, it's a, it, it's a, it's an old German battery, so this could be. I mean, Giles could have been one of the people who uh, worked out the coordinates that killed these people. So that's one response, but there are other responses. Uh, what, what, I mean, this is a British. The, the, there is not one response to anything. Uh, do you think some would find it would celebrate the deaths of their enemy? Would would think of it as revenge for? Well, Knight- let's think about what happened at Knightsbridge. There would be people that would see it as just giving it back to the Germans for what they did at Knightsbridge, and that's completely understandable. That's totally understandable. People behave in different ways in different circumstances, but the South Nazis gave it back to the Germans for Knightsbridge, in the view of some. So different reactions, different different thoughts. Now I hope you've enjoyed uh, this, this this podcast. Uh, it 
what, what we've tried to do is it's the rebuilding, it's the rebirth of the of of, of the South Noxazars. They're not a regiment anymore. They're just a battery. They're just one hundred seventh battery. To be honest, they're part of seventh medium, uh, and they're, they're, they've been subsumed in it. But I think they retain their identity and a new. We, we, we're introducing you to a, almost a new ca- cast of characters. Uh, there's very few from the old cast have survived, but there are some thanks to the. Uh, Octu experience. I hope you'll carry on following the story. We're going to take it right through to the end of the war in 1945. Um, but what most of all, I'd like you to consider also uh, uh, purchasing my book. Uh, I know, I know this is awful, but uh, my, my book uh, uh, at close range. I've remembered the title: Life and Death in an Artillery Regiment, 1939-45, is uh, is out on audio. But it will also uh, be out shortly after you heard this podcast in January. Uh, 2021. It'll finally be out in hardback and I hope you'll think of buying it. Uh, you don't have to. You can always just listen to the podcast and that'll be enough for us, won't it, Gary? No, I will think of buying it, Pete. You've already got one. I will think of buying it. <laughs> I get your drift. <sighs> yes, you're a swine. And that's it. I'm never speaking to you again. Cheers, <laughs> Pete. <laughs> Cheers. Get, oh, no, sorry. Silence. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?